Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Hank Green, who, you know, Hank doesn't need an introduction. In fact, he invited himself on Decoder. Let's do some history instead. In October 2006, Google bought YouTube for $1.65 billion. On January 1st, 2007, the brothers Hank and John Green started making videos for each other and shared them publicly on YouTube. That's the same year YouTube rolled out its partner program, which shares ad revenue between YouTube and the people who make videos. The split is 55-45 in favor of the creators. The partner program basically launched the creator economy as we know it today, and there are tons of businesses that have sprung up on YouTube. We've talked to a number of YouTubers on the show. They will tell you that being a YouTuber is a very specific kind of job. And while some YouTubers make serious additional revenue on the platform by doing branded and sponsored videos, a lot of creators can stay small and sustain themselves on ad money they get directly from the YouTube partner program. There's just enough money flowing through that system to let that happen. Because of all that money, YouTube is the gold standard for creators. It's something we've heard in every creator conversation we've ever had on Decoder. If you can make it big on YouTube, can make something of a career. That's not the case on other platforms. There's no revenue share on Instagram. There's no revenue share on Twitter. There's no revenue at all on Twitter. And most importantly, there's no revenue share on TikTok. Instead, there's something called a creator fund, which shares a fixed pool of money, about a billion dollars, among all the creators on the platform. That means as more and more creators join TikTok, everyone gets paid less. You might understand this concept. It's basic division. Now, as you'd expect from one of the original and most successful YouTubers and creators out there, Hank has very strong opinions about platforms and how they pay creators. In addition to being an individual creator himself, he's also the CEO of Complexly, a 50-person company that makes educational content about science, history, and art across about 20 YouTube channels and podcasts. And if it wasn't for the YouTube ad money, none of those shows would exist because YouTube still has that big 55-45 split of all ad revenue. So in February, Hank made a video about why the TikTok creator fund is a really bad deal for creators and why the YouTube model is still superior. As it happens, that was right around the time I was talking to YouTube chief product officer Neil Mohan on Decoder, and I asked him when YouTube would switch from a creator's fund 
to the ad split model on YouTube Shorts, which is its TikTok competitor. Neil confirmed that a new monetization model for Shorts was in the works, and the Creators Fund was just a way for the company to develop and refine the metrics it needs to properly attribute the money to creators and videos. It still hasn't rolled out, but that's what he said. After that episode with Neil came out, one of Hank's friends tweeted it at him and said he should go and decoder and talk about it. So Hank invited himself on the show. This episode's long. It's weedsy. Honestly, it's pretty deep in our feelings about participating in the internet culture economy and the relationship between huge platform companies and the communities that build on them. But it's a good one, and it's important. I think it's not something any of us talk about enough. Okay, Hank Green, creator and CEO of Complexly. Here we go. Hank Green, you are the CEO of Complexly. That's a very popular internet creator. Welcome to Decoder. <laughs> Thanks. I listen all the time. I learn a lot from the conversations you have. So thank you for having them. Oh, get ready for the org chart questions, man. They're coming. Oh, I'm, I've, I've been thinking about it and I'm like, I don't I feel satisfied with my own answer. <laughs> it is also true that you are our first guest who has uh, effectively invited himself on the show in a tweet. So I appreciate that. In the whole history? Yeah. It was a friend of mine who was like, Hank, you should, you, why haven't you been on Decoder? And I was like, please. Uh, and it worked. <laughs> but don't mind if I do. Uh, so we had interviewed uh, Neil Moen, who's the chief product officer of YouTube. He had talked about his creator fund for YouTube shorts. TikTok has a creator fund. You are very opinionated about creator funds. I hate them. There it is. That's the whole show, everybody. Uh, it's been two minutes. We're going to run about five ads now, and then we'll, that's the whole show. Not only do I hate them, they're very bad, and everyone should hate them with me. All right, great. Yeah. That's how Twitter works, right? Yeah, the promo code is decoder. We'll see you next week. All right, well, I want to talk about all that stuff, but uh, you are a business person, and you've built a, a long-standing uh, business, a stable business on the shifting sands yeah. of the creator internet over like 15 <laughs> years. So I want to talk about that, too. Okay. Start with Complexly. What is Complexly? What are, what are your goals with a company like Complexly? Complexly is a uh, educational media company that is focused on making things through the internet and making them available through the internet and, and thus also available to everyone and available for free and making that media as good as what you might see on television or being sold to schools by bigger you know, educational media companies. And that's tough. And there's certainly stuff that those big companies do that we don't do. But the only way that it felt like we could compete in that world was kind of to just like make it, put it out there. And if students like it, if teachers like it, they'll use it. And, and if they don't, then they won't. And that's the whole thing. And it's, you know, it's a tricky business to put together. And it has a like, it's very diversified <laughs> is the nice way <laughs> of saying uh, we can't make it work without uh, trying like eight different things at the same time. But, you know, it's got a couple of a few really big YouTube channels and, and then there are podcasts uh, and that's the majority of what we do. Also some, you know, other social media stuff. But the it's 10 years on now and it's making it work. Uh, there are definitely days when I feel like somebody should just come out of the woodwork and give me $10 million so I don't have to worry all the time. But that's not business, I guess. Business, where are you at, man? There's like billionaires floating around. They've got to watch the channel. They got to listen to this podcast, right? Yeah, I mean that's the that's the whole idea. Yeah, and then they want to be on it and talk about their org charts. It's all bait. The whole podcast is bait. So you have actually flipped a company before. You you started VidCon with your brother. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was the conference for creators. You flipped it to Viacom. What was that process like for you? Is that something you do again? 
I mean, weirdly, it was the second company I sold. Uh, the first one was Subable, which we sold to Patreon. It was basically did the exact same thing Patreon did, except we had no tech. Um, so every, like <laughs> to, to sign up, you had to email someone and be like, can I be on your platform? And that was wonderful, a wonderful, easy project to merge those two companies together. Glad we did it. The Viacom thing was much bigger and more complex, and I had to be really thoughtful about it. And, and it's always been something that I, like in the moment I was ambivalent about, remain ambivalent about, even, I mean, less ambivalent now that uh, there's been two years of pandemic and I would we would have gone bankrupt <laughs> eight times during that period uh, if if there hadn't been a larger company behind it. And what that was one of the reasons why we so badly wanted to do it. We felt very vulnerable to the world and not, not wasn't thinking of pandemic specifically, but just any instability when you base your entire business on three days in the summer. That's scary. So we, we initially thought, I initially thought we were going to sell to a conference company. I was like, some company that runs conferences will run this conference. But then I realized that if we did that, that company would be trying to run the conference to make it the most profitable thing, whereas a media company is going to be running it to make it the coolest thing so that they look cool, because we're not like a big piece of Viacom's budget over at VidCon. That is the game for events at media companies. That's why you do it. Yeah. And that seemed like a way better outcome than having somebody trying to squeeze every penny instead trying to create a really cool event where they look good and they make connections and, you know, they get to put their executives up on the stage. But like, and ultimately, like you have to make the conference really good in order for it to do the, is that your actual objective is a good conference rather than profit. But having gone through the sale of two companies, are you like, you know, you just set up someone gives me $10 million. Are you like, I need to sell (laughs) at some point and walk off into the sunset? No, I don't like the sunset. Uh, sunsets are terrible. Have you ever looked at one? Really? <laughs> They're so ugly. Yeah, I'm, I'm a worker and I like to do stuff. Now, there, there's oftentimes I, I have feelings where I wish I had time to do other work that I don't currently have time to do. So I, I do think about that. And I think about like, how do I create these businesses so that they have great leadership? And, and am I doing enough of that? mentoring or enough of like the systematizing my own brain uh, instead of like being like, it's all much easier if I just do the work and I don't have to help other people do the work. But I really like what both of my companies are doing right now and I feel really good about them and it's hard, but I certainly don't think about acquisition for, for those companies. I think about, you know, how do I get great leadership to support me? So here they are. Here come the decoder questions. How many people at these companies? Uh, DFTBA, which is our like a company that helps creators create great products and sell those products to their communities, is about fifty, and uh, you know the majority of those are on the warehouse side, and then there's like uh, support and then product development and client support, and then uh, Complex is about fifty people too, which is spread across a bunch of different shows. Uh, people are mostly focused on individual shows at Complexly. There are some people who sort of jump between teams. Let's focus on complexly. Uh, I think we do a whole episode on merch and logistics and print on demand shipping. How the heck did I, why do I know so much about any of that? That was not my intent, but I do now. I think I have to disclose. I think that our, our merch store is DFTBA. Yeah. Vox does work with us. Yeah. Yeah. So go buy an emails t-shirt. It'll help us both out. The promo code is decoder. (laughs) It's the best shirt that we all make together. I got to be honest with you. But let's let's focus on complexly. 50 people. You said most people are focused on individual shows. How is it structured overall? A lot of our editorial, so the words that come out of people's mouths is is contract based. So with Crash Course specifically, like we will be teaching a course on 
chemistry. And we so like if you're going to be making a course over the course of a year on chemistry, you don't need to hire a chemistry writer who you're going to have to fire at the end of that year. So it's a lot of expert contractors doing fact checking, syllabus stuff, course design and the actual writing of the thing. And then we have sort of an editorial team that um, knows how to turn smart people's words into crash courses. And that's similar to how it works over on SciShow, similar to how it works over on Eons, which is our like prehistoric world life podcast and YouTube show. And and so like those shows sort of like live in their worlds. They usually have a person who's in charge of editorial, who's not necessarily writing most of the stuff, but who's uh, doing doing the management of, of contract people. And then there's a production team that is in charge of actually turning it into something pretty. And at Crash Course the graphics are actually outsourced to another company called Thought Cafe in Canada who are amazing. So we don't have to figure out how to do all of that. So it's a lot like, you know, you look at our pie chart and the second biggest piece of the pie is contractors after employees. And then we have like a person who is in charge of the like content for the whole company. And then a person who's in charge of the editorial for the whole company. So like the, all of those editors uh, who are on different shows report to a person who's in charge of editorial and then all the production people uh, report up to the content head. And it's, you know, it's pretty clodged together. I didn't think hard about how org structure works. I didn't listen to enough decoder, honestly, before <laughs> I started running a business. I, well, if you listen to enough decoder, you realize like everyone's just making it up. Yeah. It's like, well, just like, and like half the time they're like, I changed it for the sake of change, which is yeah. really interesting over time uh, to be like, I, I, I just flipped the table just so everyone would like get a refresh is a real theme that comes up on the show. Wow. Yeah. We've never on that or maybe we have and we just rationalized it (laughs) (laughs) i think there's a lot of that that happens too that no one wants to admit to me any cutter so how many direct reports do you have you're the ceo at complexity i think five so head of content head of production the coo hr i guess hr reports the coo and then my assistant and the chief of staff and then how do you manage your this is like the hardest thing for me right so i have i have a big management business function that I have to do as Mm editor-in-chief and then I have to be an individual creative on this show and other shows all the time. And I find context switching between those two things to be almost impossible. Like (laughs) I need a full day of just like walking around in a circle to reset my brain and go do the other thing. You make a lot of stuff, right? Like I would say your James Webb space telescope TikTok is one of my favorite pieces of internet content from the past year. Yeah, that was fun. And you were just like really excited and you were just like in the moment and it's great, but you had, but you had to like make it. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming like your COO is, is like, yo, we got a business deal. I got to talk to you about. Yeah. And they just had to wait. Like, how do you manage that split? How do you manage that time? I don't uh, suffer much in switching. I find that like once I'm in a meeting, I'm in the meeting. And then if I can keep my fingers off of Twitter, then I'm in, I stay in the meeting. <laughs> and then once I'm out of the meeting, and I'm at an unscheduled time, then I just sort of slip into creative mode. And, you know, and that might be unproductive creative mode where I'm like trying not to yell at somebody on Twitter. That's how I've, I've switched over to that, by the way. I used to, that time used to be yelling at people on Twitter. Now it's trying not to. Yeah. Which is great. I think that that's a huge, a huge step forward for me. What I recommend, by the way, is I have a Slack channel with like three friends where we tweet the things at each other instead of tweeting them on Twitter. It's very good. Yeah. I think which of my YouTuber friends would most like this shitty tweet? <laughs> I send it to them. <laughs> you know, that that video actually I did while my wife was out of town and I was like, oh, like with my son and he was on a, you know, he was eating his lunch watching YouTube videos. And I was like, I'm going to go make this. I've got a great idea for a TikTok. Do you have to schedule your unscheduled time? Oh, yeah. 
So you have like blocks on your calendar that are like, I'm going to go mess with TikTok. Yeah, actually like Thursday, which is wild. I don't do, I don't schedule anything on Thursday unless something's bad. And then I uh, have Friday afternoons, which you're a little bit cutting into, I have to be honest. This is a, this is creative work here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then I have, there, there are several other periods of my week where usually there's like four hour blocks. And then right now, actually next week, I don't have that because there's a bunch of stuff going on, but. All right. So here's the classic decoder question. It's the one you came on to answer. You've been at it for 15 years. You've got two companies. You've weathered the shifting sands of platforms. How do you make decisions? I mean, there's a bunch of different kinds of decisions. I mean, you've got to balance your stakeholders. And for me, I'm really lucky in that like the first stakeholder or I had, there were two. There's my brother. So we're making this vlog together in like 2007. And then the people who were watching it. And that was it. You know, I wasn't even really one because there wasn't like <laughs> money involved at that point. And so to have the audience be a primary stakeholder um, and just have like my brother be kind of the most important member of the audience was... You know, that that feels right when I like oftentimes I will I will be in a, a meeting and people will be confused about what we should do. And it will be extraordinarily obvious to me because like I'm thinking, well, you know, it doesn't matter what that person wants or what that advertiser wants or whatever. Like if it's not if like the audience is if we're going to lose credibility with those people, if we're going to like not have their support and respect, if we're going to have less of their support and respect after this than before it. That's costs way more than anything, any mistake we could possibly make or any relationship with an advertiser. So that is always sort of the primary touch point for for decisions, unless it's family, you know. Explain that to me. Well, unless unless my, my wife is like, you have not seen your son in four days. Oh, right. Okay, that makes sense to me. I, I understand that. <laughs> yeah, now you're there. The family, because there's the mafia boss of all educational YouTubers. And if we don't report correctly to the family... <laughs> You get whacked. Like, I don't know if you've seen what happens out here. The family is serious. Yeah, there is. I would say there's an underlying YouTube mafia. We'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> there is, yeah. You've got 50 people at Complexly. They're all working on channels. Is it all YouTube money that's paying the bills? Where's the revenue come from? Oh, gosh, no. So but it's a huge piece. I think probably maybe up to a third of our money comes straight from YouTube. But uh, we are, um, you know, we have channels that are mostly supported by merchandise, we have channels that are mostly supported by crowdfunding. We have channels that are mostly supported by like Crash Course, for example, is crowdfunding, YouTube money, uh, direct ad sales that we sell in grants. Like the, and, and like there is no piece of that that could go away and we could still make the show. And Crash Course, I think probably the biggest piece is crowdfunding. So a third of the company's revenue comes from YouTube. Mm -hmm. Is that going up? Is it going down? Could you walk away from YouTube? No. Both culturally and economically, I could not walk away from YouTube. I, I, uh, it's it's a little bit like saying, "Would you walk away from America?" For me, you know, it's like there's there's things I very much don't like about it, but I, you know, I feel a little like a citizen, and that would be such a big decision to make for me culturally. But in terms of money, no, also no. <laughs> Monetization, like just AdSense, is really quite powerful, and we get a lot of views and a lot of money comes in from those views and there aren't platforms that share revenue like that. Um, and there's also like, you know, a, a lot of our traffic comes from the YouTube recommendation system. A lot of our traffic comes from search and there aren't a lot of platforms that are, you know, driving a lot of traffic to video with search uh, outside of YouTube. So the 55% is a big deal. That's 55% of the revenue split. So you yeah. get 55% of 
the ad money and YouTube keeps yeah. the 45%. Yeah. I, like it was the, there's a lot of companies out there that would not work without that. Let me push on citizen of YouTube for a minute. No. Oh, yeah, please. It's a big idea, but there's YouTube, a company, which is not benign. It's a company. It has motives, it has a CEO. This is also true. I will, I will say that this is also true of, of a country. It's true. But like, you know, you don't get to vote out Susan Wojcicki. Like she's the no. CEO of YouTube. She's got to deliver a revenue line to Google shareholders in turn to Alphabet shareholders. It's very complicated, that structure. But then there's the YouTube community in the most reductive sense. Are you a citizen of the YouTube community or the YouTube company? Or is it both at once? How does that feel for you? I think that it's impossible to disentangle them. I think that a lot of YouTubers think of themselves as part of the YouTube community and not of YouTube, the company. I mean, you can do that in your head. You can like ha- have that be a separation that you make in your head. I don't think that it's a separation exists in the real world, though. You know, the y- YouTube community is based on the YouTube's algorithms, which is based on YouTube's business model. I wouldn't be the first person to live in a place where I don't get to vote for the leader. Uh, you know, probably the you know, vast majority of societies for pre-democracy or in some way. And also like there are levers, which is why like if I, when I'm thinking about it like this, it's, you know, you say, okay, I don't get to vote out Susan Wojcicki, but what are the levers that people have? And like people who work for YouTube have a lot of power over Susan. People who make content on YouTube have some power. Advertisers have power over Susan. Like there are levers that people pull and have pulled that and you know you just we just watched it with Instagram. I don't know when this is going to come mm-hmm. out, but uh, Instagram getting a tremendous amount of pushback of over sort of like having the app be just straight up TikTok. TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> like Kim Kardashian's <laughs> mad at you, and Instagram is like, uh, we're very sorry. We're, we'll try something else. Yeah. Right? Like, so so there are okay. there, there, it's just like Kim Kardashian is the, is is an oligarch of Instagram basically who who has enough power to influence and and so like it's all power structures and of course, of course I'm you know. There are many ways in which YouTube is not a country. For example, I can leave, whereas, you know, citizens of countries can't leave them easily anyway. You know, but I do try and like recognize that in myself and also almost a little bit indulge in it where it's just like I have to accept that I live a lot of my life. And this is, you know, I'm more this way than most people. But like this is the case for a lot of people. We live a lot of our lives in these places that are corporate autocracies. And like that is our choice. And the fact that it is our choice is the thing that gives us freedom from the feeling of being in an actual autocracy because we can choose to leave. But like my businesses can't choose to leave, but that's kind of also okay. You know, in the same way that like my business couldn't choose to leave my town or like many people's business couldn't choose to leave a town. So, you know, I, I like I try and understand the gravity, the significance of that relationship, which I think is bigger than most people think it is, both in terms of business and in terms of our actual, like our attention, which is the only thing that we have. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we have to talk about the YouTube algorithm. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. 
If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs. Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers. Search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. Just before the break, you said something I want to focus on a little bit. You said that algorithm shifts affect the community. And I think every YouTube creator I've ever talked to is aware of that at their core, right? That the distribution platform and the whims of the distribution platform will directly affect what they make. And you you can see it. Um, a recent bad example, like bad, like philosophically bad example is views on Johnny Depp, Amber Heard coverage yeah. skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. So like hundreds of channels, like video game channels suddenly pivoted to like live courtroom reaction channels to get themselves in the partner program and monetize uh-huh. and then explicitly said, and then we're going to go back to making video game videos. Yeah. That dynamic is not obvious to the audience, I think, but like, how do you see it? Like you've been a part of this community for a long time. Like, how do you see it play out? Is it, there's an algo change and, the group text blows up and it's like, we're all going to make train videos today. Like <laughs> it's, it's better to imagine instead of like a change happening within YouTube. And so you see like a shift, but like it's easier to imagine um, when you look at two different platforms that have different algorithms, they have different form factors, they have different start dates. Like they came around at different moments in time and all that stuff tremendously impacts what kind of stuff gets made, what the culture of the platform is, how the creators behave, what the creators incentives are. So like it goes back to McLuhan, right? It's just like the medium is the message. And like in this case, the algorithm is a really important part of the medium. So the thing that gets created is going to be the thing that succeeds. Like there's just that we can't say that for sure, because there are some things that people won't make even if it's successful. Some of things, not very much anymore. (laughs) But like what we can say is that things won't get made if they don't succeed. And if they do, it doesn't matter because no one's seeing it. So what gets created and, and like the vast difference between what a television show is, what a Facebook video is, what a YouTube video is, what a tweet is, what a TikTok is, what an Instagram uh, reel is, 
Like these things are very different from each other. Like what succeeds on those platforms is different. Even in the case of like vertical swipeable video, which is, it seems like the same medium on these different platforms, like very small changes, you know, have huge impacts. And so like that, I think the difference between a YouTube video and a Facebook video is like as different as the, as the difference between like a TV show and a YouTube video. Let's get into like the weeds of it. Like you are at the broadest brush, right? A, like a science YouTuber. Yeah. Sometimes YouTube loves science. <laughs> Other times it's like, we're all, everyone dressed up like Elsa and stab Elmo in the heart. Like just <laughs> weird things happen on YouTube that suddenly gather views and nobody yeah. can like predict it or understand it. Even the people inside of YouTube yeah. are often surprised at uh-huh. what the algorithm has decided is uh, trending today. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> they spend a lot of time being like, what is our machine doing? Yeah. But, you know, like I, I cover tech and business. That's the thing I want to do because we have our own site. Although mm-hmm. the traffic from our site comes from many platforms and including Google. So we yeah. have some pressure there, but we're like, this is the thing we make and the audience will come to us directly. And that's great. Mm-hmm. It feels like for creators on platforms, there's that you yep. want to be a science YouTuber. Other people want to be, tech YouTubers or beauty YouTubers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes YouTube is like, yep, the audience will come to you for that. And sometimes they're like, no, the audience is going somewhere else and your business will collapse. Yeah. Mechanically for you, how is that expressed? Like, how does that feel? How does that work? It feels like you need to figure out how to disentangle yourself from the algorithm to some extent. So you have to have, like, it's great to have deeper relationships with the individual people. It feels also feels like there's two things at work. One is the decisions of human beings, which is the only input that algorithms get. And so you get a higher click-through rate, your video will do better. And that click-through rate is not being determined by the algorithm. It's being determined by a human be- like a bunch of human beings making decisions. And so, you know, as with all content creators forever, like it's not like magazine covers aren't like this. You know, you have to market your content somehow and you do it on YouTube with title and thumbnail. On TikTok, you do it with you know, like figuring out how to hook people so that they will watch for a little while and then give them enough of a reward that they'll click the like button or at least finish the video without swiping. So like you have to be aware of the things that the algorithm is probably taking into account, which is like click through rates and watch through time is almost all of it um, on YouTube. (laughs) And then you have to uh, you have to create content that will actually inspire those actions. But there's this second thing where If YouTube doesn't know what your stuff is, it can't figure out who to show it to to get the higher click through rate because there are, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of people. And my science videos aren't being showed to everyone in order to get a 3% click through rate. My science videos are being showed to people who are more likely to click on science videos. And that is what's getting that click through rate higher than like 0.5%. But if, if YouTube doesn't know how to find the people who will like your content, that's a failure of YouTube. That's a YouTube failure. It's not a content failure. It's a hard problem to solve. But like what it does is it reinforces existing audiences and making content for existing audiences. And then when things like Amber Heard, Johnny Depp mess happen, the algorithm will identify a new group of people. But you really need a pretty big critical mass to create that. Or you need a lot of time or you need it to spin off from some other group. And it's harder for YouTube because they get way fewer data points than than TikTok, which, you know, you you probably watch you know, 20 TikToks in the amount of time you spend watching one YouTube video. So that's just more data. It seems like all of this, right? You have to have this pretty analytical, logistical, somewhat ruthless brain, right? You you know what the algorithms want. You know what the platforms want. You know what the economics of the platform are. Like at the end of the day, you're still trying to get paid, I assume. Uh-huh. And then you have to be a 
creative. Yeah. But then in, you particularly have to manage 50 people through that process. Uh-huh. Like, how do you communicate out? Here's all the stuff I know about the platform and how it should inform the content to 50 people. It's hard. And like, also, it, it's important to not think that that's everybody's job. We actually have an easier time writing a great episode of SciShow than we do marketing a great episode of SciShow. And it's like the, the title is, you know, you got a 700 word script and the title is five to seven words. And it's like the by far the most important words in the <laughs> script, the interplay between a thumbnail and a title where you can have them sort of talking to each other. Or like oftentimes my editorial team, they'll want to tell people what's in the video in the title. They'd be like, here's what's in the video. Here's what you're going to get. And I'm like, well, now they don't need the video like they or they don't feel like they need the video because they feel like, oh, yeah, OK, I got that information now. I under like through the headline. And this is the problem in, in all headlines through the headline. I now got enough information where I don't need to consume the content inside of the headline. So trying to figure out the way to get people's people a little confused almost without making them believe something that's not true. That's a, another big problem. Like a headline can be true, but it can make somebody believe something that's not true. So that's like a line that we have internally at the company that if people are being misled by a headline, then because far more people are going to read the headline, then are going to watch the video or the title, I guess is what it's called. I, <laughs> I, in, back in the day, I didn't make YouTube videos. I wrote words. <laughs> so yeah, no, you're speaking my language. This is great. Let's talk about decks and leads. Yeah. So we don't want every person at the company to have to be worrying about that. Now we do want writers to be thinking about how to market the videos when they're writing the script. Or in the pitch, at least, like, is this pitch marketable? And, you know, I like to be in pitch meetings sometimes so that I can be like, how? That's cool. That's a cool thing about the universe. But like, who cares? (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And and sometimes it's fine to make videos that are only going to get 100,000 views. But the, the way that I can talk about marketing content is I will do it. And then I'll do a case study or I'll look at somebody else and I'll be like, hey, like to, to an editorial team or something. I was like, look how this person solved this problem. Like, this is a really complicated idea to get across in a title and a thumbnail. Like what's actually interesting about this topic? And they did it by X strategy. And, you know, I, I love that stuff. Like that's like my one of my favorite parts of being a YouTuber is trying to figure out how to get people to click on your videos without being a bad person. So I I'm always into into doing that. One of the worst aspects of journalism for me on that note is that sometimes it feels like a zero sum game. Like everyone's going to publish an iPhone review and I got to make sure they pick mine. Yeah. And the reality is like real people who are really interested in the iPhone read all the reviews, but like it sometimes it feels very <laughs> zero sum. Yeah. Do you think about other science YouTubers, or other YouTubers as your competition? They're still in the community with you. What's that relationship like? We don't. Uh, we're all like, we're all friends. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the only people that we don't like are the ones who are lying a little bit or cheating a little bit in some way. So they might make headlines that are kind of cheaty or they might like make their videos by doing copyright infringement that we couldn't get away with or their videos just like shoddily researched. And so they're like, it's not good information. So that's the, that's the only people that we don't like. There's like um, in, in the sort of educational YouTuber community, there is some drama. There's also a tendency that like, it's very hard to get them to work together. So it's very impressive to me when people do get them to work together because they're just so smart that everybody thinks they know the right way to do everything. (laughs) (laughs) So so like, and, and everybody's way is slightly different, but like, you know, we get together and play board games and um, are dumb and 
you know, have, have for the last 10 years. And when there's new people who come up, like they, like invariably, if like the test is like, it does your content inspire and amaze and delight and is accurate. And if that's the case, like there seems to be very little barrier once the algorithm decides that like people are going to see it, like that's, that's the hard part. But once people start seeing it and other YouTubers start thinking, oh my gosh, that's interesting. It seems to be like quite an open place as long as you're not being manipulative or misinforming people. That's maybe the third time you've mentioned the algorithm is sort of like an external force that will make a decision. I'm picking up on that because I know you mentor a lot of creators. You mm-hmm. make a lot of videos about the platforms and the nature of the platforms. Mm-hmm. When younger creators come to you for guidance and mentorship, when I talk to folks like that, they really do see the algorithm as some external force that might bless them or not. And I'm always kind of like, yes, but no, right? Like it's, there's a part of it that's in your control. How do you give that advice? Uh, it is very yes, but no. And I think that it's, you know, it can be very hard when the problem isn't the algorithm, which is all, all, often the case. Like it's, you know, it's just that the the hook isn't hooky enough or the hosting isn't snappy enough or something. And, uh, you know, there's it, it, it's extremely crowded out there. So that's tough. But usually when I'm like having long conversations with creators, it's because I think their content is very good. <laughs> so the main thing there is like, you know, it's a, it's gotta be obsession and it's sort of sucks that it has to be obsession, but like you're obsessed with the difference between a 3.9% click-through rate and a 4.0 click-through rate. Like you're just thinking about that. You're thinking about you know, your, your view to like ratios on TikTok, you're thinking about like, what was different about this video? Why did this one pick up? And it often like on TikTok, it can straight be magic. Like, I think that, I think that TikTok almost intentionally introduces randomness into uh, how it promotes content because it like gets people more addicted. Randomness is, is, yeah. you know, your brain, brain tries to figure it out. And so it's like creates false narratives. And so, you know, like the, the, the main thing though, is like, how do you select great topics? And then it's also, how do you deal with success? Which is something that is, is easier to talk about because it's, it's more transferable from person to person. Whereas success is so different, you know, 10 years ago than it is now. I don't have experience. I don't know what it would be like to try and start right now. One of the things that I've noticed in the pandemic, just on that note is like, these jobs have become very public, but very lonely. Yeah. And, you know, you're like in Montana, so it's, you've always been someone I But like three years ago, someone in the Virgin newsroom would like publish a hit, like a big scoop. And they would get to like walk into the newsroom mm. and like people would know it. And there was like a little bit of a feedback loop, even though all the attention was really happening online. Mm-hmm. Now it's like you're alone, like you're just alone at home. Like many people in these industries, creative industries are just kind of like alone at home. Mm-hmm. You get famous online and then you like close your laptop lid and you're still alone. It's, it's a weird thing that is happening right now. Yeah. So when you're talking about dealing with success, is it, there's going to be a flood of weird agents and lawyers who come to you. Is it suddenly strangers are going to dissect the background of every video and be weird about you? Or is it, it's still going to feel lonely. Cause that to me is the weirdest part of this entire moment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all of those things. One of the hard parts of, being a creative entrepreneur is that you have to both be 
ambitious, but also balance it with like something healthy. So I don't know, like ambition can be healthy, but ambition is usually early in a career. It comes from, there's like a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. There's like trying to prove yourself. There's trying to be more successful than this person you think sucks. Like there's a lot of kind of dirty fuels that burn pretty hot. And, and that drives a lot of people, and I've certainly used them. <laughs> so I try to talk about it in those terms, but also that there has to, like, if you go all in, you have to be able to come some out. And whether that's, like, six months later or whether it's every day, I think it's better for it to be every day, where you have pieces of why you think you matter and your identity that are not connected to 100,000 people loving you who you've never met. So what are the things that you're diversifying into that still bring you joy and still make you feel valued? And I think that in part, like I was, I'm lucky to have lived in Montana this whole time where um, my friends don't care that much. And what we talk about is like, I whine about work and then they whine about work, you know? (laughs) 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 And it also like, it, it puts into perspective, you know, that like, I got like a lot of cool things going on so I can feel good about it without comparing myself to other creators who are maybe getting more views per video. Um, you know, but like my friend who is a baker, you know, is worrying about bakery things and I'm worrying about click-through rates and like, that's just life. Like some people worry about bakery things and some people worry about YouTuber things. This is a perfect time to take on the break. Cause when we come back, we're going to turn our attention to TikTok. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. Let's talk about TikTok. Just before the break, you were talking about views on your videos. You're on this show because you you tweeted us about creator funds. (laughs) And TikTok's economics are set up as a zero-sum game, right? There's a fixed pot of money, a billion or so dollars, that they distribute to the creators on the platform Mm -hmm. per views. Mm -hmm. And that's all the money. And the platform is obviously growing like a weed. Mm-hmm. And that means the payouts are getting smaller and smaller. You made a very long video about this. I encourage everyone to go to watch it. You did a good job of summarizing it. So good. That's the whole game. It's <laughs> it's just division. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's just, I feel like this audience, the decoder audience in particular, I'd be like, there's a fixed pot of money and more people are eating the money. And so the money's getting smaller, right? Yeah. But you're on TikTok, right? And I would say mm-hmm. like, I've seen more and more of you on TikTok over time because it, it's kind of just like easier to make. Like the yep. cost of TikTok production is so much lower. How are you thinking about that balance between platforms? How are you thinking about TikTok? So to talk about TikTok, let's talk first about Instagram, because I think that Instagram is fascinating because Instagram never shared revenue with creators or it has and it's done it in like weird little temporary ways or something. Uh, But it's never been like YouTube where it's like, we're going to create a stable economic ecosystem where you know how much you are making and you are making that money based on how effectively we can sell ads against your content. And what that did is, is it created a t- an Instagram where in order to have a viable business as an Instagram creator, you had to do it as a person who is going to be good at doing brand deals. And so like Instagram kind of created the brand deal a little bit. 
Uh, and that was the way that you could be a professional Instagrammer. And this was fantastic. Can you just quickly explain what a brand deal is for people? Sure. A, a, a brand like L'Oreal comes to you and says, we want you to talk about our shampoo in your in your TikTok or in your Instagram post. And uh, and it's just like a way of getting an advertising impression that's connected to the credibility uh, and the authenticity of the creator. So what that created was an ecosystem where you could only be a professional in the ecosystem if you were good at selling certain products. And that meant that that Instagram became focused on lifestyle and beauty content and aspirational content, not because there was anything intrinsic to Instagram about that kind of content, but because that was the economic incentive. Like you had to create aspirational content so people would want to have a life like yours so that you could sell them shampoo. That seems like a huge miss to me that there were like if you had created a platform where you could make money doing lots of different kinds of things, like, say, YouTube did, then you would have a much more impactful, bigger, deeper, cool, interesting platform. Now that I don't think like Instagram is cool and interesting, there's like especially like most of the things that are going on on, t- on Instagram that are interesting, though, don't make any money. So TikTok is is interesting in that it, it saw that and it was like, OK, why would we share a portion of our money with creators if Instagram figured out how to do it without sharing anything. I think the reason to say that is because you're screwing yourself over. You're saying like only certain kinds of content that are good at selling stuff are going to be economically viable on your platform. But at the same time, brand deals are working very well on TikTok. And so, you know, I don't know if that's permanent. And I, I it, it also seems to be that it doesn't need to be as aspirational. It doesn't like it's not needing to sort of like rest on you want my life. It can be more like we have the same life. And so trust me. But, you know, the reality is people are making plenty of money like they're making money like that, not at this like per view level, anything like the amount of money you make on YouTube. But like people are figuring out how to make it work on TikTok. TikTok gives the creator instead of money, it gives them attention and creators have to figure out how to turn that attention into money. And a lot of kinds of content, though, still aren't that good at that. And so you the, the platform is limiting itself only to content that's good at at helping people sell things for other people or for themselves if they're, you know, if they're big enough to sort of create their own products. And I think that that's very limiting for the platform. And I think it's very bad for creators because it means that the the kind of content, it's it's not just what's successful. It's also what uh, can be turned into something that's monetizable. Do you make money from TikTok? I mean, no, but I do. The main way I have made money from TikTok is that I have a sock subscription. And the sock subscription, <laughs> you, get a, you get a pair of uh, socks delivered every month to you, designed by a different independent artist that, that we decide to collaborate with. And... All of the profit from the sock club goes to charity, so I don't make money. But but the sock club has donated over a million dollars to charity, and and TikTok has been the biggest piece of the marketing of the sock club. So I can see that conversions come like they, like TikTok <laughs> is pretty good at converting. So I get that, but I the success of YouTube just leads me to believe that the savvy move is to share revenue rather than create these static pools. But that's a very hard message to sell when you have gone from losing money every year to just printing cash and to say like, okay, we're printing cash. We're going to give away half of it. It's a hard sell. And I very much hope that YouTube does put that pressure on by having that relationship with shorts, which has just exploded as well. Like my shorts are doing better than my TikToks. Really? Yeah. But shorts are monetized via a creator fund. 
Shorts are currently basically unmonetized. So yeah, they're monetized by Creator Fund, but but for YouTube, Shorts is unmonetized. There's no advertisements running on Shorts. Shorts is just a hole that they're throwing money into right now. So to, to me, I'm like, okay, you can give us... Creator Fund is better than sharing uh, 50% of nothing. But the moment YouTube launches its monetization product for Shorts... <laughs> has to be soon, right? Well, I mean, um, you have a different kind of relationship with YouTube than me. I ask YouTube questions, 35 comms people lawyer out an answer. Yeah. And then it, it's ground into dust and the answer is nothing. Well, I thought Neil's answer on this podcast was really good, though. He looks like straight up like we will share revenue on shorts ads the same way we share revenue on everything else. But they, no one knows how they're going to do it. Yeah. That's a great, like Neil's great. And I think Neil's very honest. That was a great episode. But like he gets to say that because he already has the thing. And he can just promise the next thing forever. TikTok can't say that because they don't have the thing. What thing don't they have? They don't have a like an AdSense like model that shares revenue like that. They just have a creator fund. YouTube already has the model everyone wants. Do you think it's the model or the technology that's the problem? Like what's the difficulty of launching the thing? So I think for YouTube, it's very easy to say we will extend our current advertising model from regular YouTube to shorts. Mm-hmm. The problem to solve there is... It's not pre-roll, right? It's in between swipes of video. Right. So you have to figure out who's responsible for the for the impression. So there's a little bit of a technology and business and politics problem there, but like not unsolvable because you can just expand a thing that you already have. Yeah. And say it's going to work this way. And you've got the pre-existing understanding of everyone that some huge percentage of the money coming in will go out. Yeah. And that everyone includes, again, like alphabet shareholders who know that YouTube is built this way. And so extending the model for them. TikTok, right, they just have a giant Chinese corporation that no one can really pierce the veil of. And then they've got the Chinese government. But they can't necessarily be like, we're changing our revenue model so that 55% of every incoming dollar then goes out to create. Like, that's a big change. Right. So you're saying it's harder to sell for the shareholders more than it's harder to sort of build the product or... Yeah. Like, Spotify is the best comparison I can make, actually, which is, like, tangential, but has the same problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Like every dollar you pay into Spotify, most of it goes out to artists. Or record labels. <laughs> sure, record labels. Um, <laughs> and songwriters and like whoever. But like, yeah. you know, and they're ever, in, they're chasing increasing margins by doing podcasts and audiobooks and all this other right. stuff where they don't have that economic relationship. Mm-hmm. But then on the flip side, Spotify also has huge shareholders in the record labels, which own huge chunks of Spotify. Mm-hmm. And they've got a legal regime in this country. Yeah where they're like regulated into having to pay certain amounts of license fees for music in certain ways. And like the creators get none of that. There's like legal, like that that's law. Whereas the TikTok's problem is, can you get shareholders on board with the idea that this will be a more dynamic, long lasting ecosystem if we uh, pay creators and it, not just sort of like put the burden of monetization on them, but also do some work to actually pay them more than like, you know, 0.0000 cents per view. Yeah. But like, I know in over the course of the past many years, you have made many videos where you're like, YouTube is dumb for X and then YouTube will like change it. Right. Like my joke is that the life cycle of every YouTuber hits an inflection point where they make a YouTube video about how mad they are at YouTube. Yeah. And that's where like everything changes. They, they become self-aware like in Westworld, like that <laughs> video is when it happens. But like YouTube is responsive to its creative community that way. Do you think TikTok is responsive to its creative community in that way? I don't really. I think that they've got some pretty big pro. Like the, you know, they're responsive to big, big creators, big, 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 big creators. Like Instagram's res- responsive to a Kardashian, for example. Like a huge problem they have is that moderation is 
really automated and there's very little recourse. So you, I've, I've had friends who've had channels with over or accounts with over a million followers that just lost it and there's no recourse. Like I, Hank Green, could not get them that sounded very egotistical, but like I have contacts <laughs> inside TikTok and I, I was like, what can we do for this person? And they're like, well, the person who handles that does not take my calls. Like I'm not allowed to talk to them. I, I think that there's just not enough infrastructure built up there. It feels to me more like the relationship between Facebook and creators where it's sort of like, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. And I think that maybe the concern is like, if you give creators a little bit, they're going to expect more and more and more and more. So just let them deal with us as we exist. And, you know, if we hear something that seems like a good feature change, we'll change that feature. We won't like say that we responded to the creator community, even like the, it's more like, imagine us as a black box and not made of people <laughs> and th- that people don't make these decisions. It's TikTok uh, that makes these decisions. And, and I think that's how most creators think about it. Like they don't think about it as a group of people. Is that a, does that make it a viable hedge against YouTube? I think I, I know a lot of creators who think, okay, the audience is moving to TikTok. The platforms certainly are terrified of the audience moving to TikTok, but economically it doesn't seem like a viable hedge or a sustainable or stable hedge against something like YouTube. What do you mean by hedge? We, you know, earlier we talked about diversifying your revenue streams. So I think like Patreon is a viable hedge right. against the instability of YouTube, right? So for a creator, is TikTok a viable hedge? Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that creators are often super aware of the fact that like that, that they are in the attention game rather than the money game and that that's more what motivates most of them anyway. That's certainly what motivates you at the beginning before any money is there. So I think that in that way it is like it's certainly an attention hedge if it's not an economic one. But at the same time, like I even after, you know, two plus years of being a TikToker, like a straight like I'm a TikToker now, I do not feel like it's a stable place. And I feel like it what's going to be interesting to me is like, when does it happen? When does the moment of self-awareness arise in enough people? Because this happens every platform. Like I remember when like the relationship between Twitch and streamers was just so beautiful and loving and rosy and everybody was so happy about every decision that Twitch made. And then like at some point it was just like, honk. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I remember that happening with YouTube too. Like we loved YouTube early on. Like there was never any drama between YouTube and YouTubers in the beginning. And I think that, you know, it's been interesting because it isn't really when creators start to feel that way. It's when audiences start listening to them about it. Because right now you can make a TikTok about how annoying you annoyed you are by some decision TikTok made. But unless the audience is like going to watch that instead of the next thing that they could immediately swipe to, then it doesn't matter. Like it's not going to get any views. Do you think that TikTok, the mechanism of TikTok, the swipe actually insulates TikTok from that kind of criticism, right? Because you have a relationship with YouTubers in a way that you might not have a relationship with TikTokers. Right. I think that it does until TikTok starts to experience, like in the audience's head, isn't all positive vibes. And, you know, right now, I think that the vast majority of people who use TikTok kind of picture them as like an upstart, like what a surprise, what a delightful little place um, without any idea of how big ByteDance is. You know, I think they, yeah. they think that TikTok's this tiny little sudden, a sudden com- company that is fighting the big dogs and that's like it's like an underdog story and and that feels really good and so it's sort of like well you know give them give them time give them give them some slack they're like tiktok they're a tiny little company and it's just like you know i don't think anybody like it's very it would be very weird for because like you know you don't have any other interactions with bite dance as an american human 
do you think of yourself as a citizen of TikTok? You you just call yourself a TikToker. Yeah. Are you a citizen of TikTok the way you're a citizen of YouTube? Yeah, totally. Is it is it a different feeling than being a YouTuber? Oh yeah, yeah. It feels uh, much more surface level. Like TikTok, for example, will send you a two hundred dollar flower arrangement, but they will not talk to you about when you whether your friend's account got canceled. You know, <laughs> and I think that they may be cutting back on this a little bit. But early for a while there, the TikTok swag was out of hand. Like, I, like my like I was like my wife was like, you need to tell them to stop sending stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Is that everybody just like, I don't know. We'll see if it happens again this this Christmas, but just like cakes and skateboard decks and sh- sh- hoodies and boxes. It's just like. This is a company that does not have to make money. This <laughs> that, like That's what that indicates to me. Like this is a company that's still totally in the burn phase and maybe will be forever in the burn phase. Mm, I don't think that TikTok is in the burn phase anymore. And I also think that like spending $1,000 on a creator that's making them $100,000 is great deal for them. Like if they can send somebody flowers instead of sharing revenue, that's a huge win. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so this is my, this is my second question. TikTok is ByteDance. ByteDance is a Chinese company. I know. I'm just, I just realized in this conversation, the people I know at TikTok who are going to listen to the conversation, I just want to say, I'm sorry. This is how I feel. I would love, I would love to not feel this way. I would love to feel like you have the capacity to take on the, the, the sort of complexity of the challenges you face. And I would love to feel like you want to support creators the same way that YouTube does, but I don't feel that way. Yeah. And that's what the difference in like citizenship feeling is for you. Yeah. But I do feel like I love the TikTok community hugely like this is where it's complicated like there's so much creativity and there's so much air there's so much light in the forest where there isn't any on youtube so much opportunity to get discovered and that that means that the the diversity of science creators is head and shoulders above youtube it's younger it's more female it's more of color it's and like these are decisions people are making like people want content from different kinds of people and like i've loved that and I also love like just how culture just freaking happens. Like it's a huge driver of culture. It feels and like I am happy to be on it. I, I have a lot of concerns about it, and and I think that it's definitely a citizenship thing to not sort of like accept the place where you are as the way that it will always be. Here's what I'll say about the that diversity of creators thing. It feels like YouTube's algorithms have like settled in. They're like middle aged. Yeah, they're going to be who they are forever. <laughs> What do you inject into an algorithm to turn it into a 12-year-old again? Like, that's, we got to figure that out. Yeah, like, they all need to have midlife crises. Yeah. Like, the, the tech recommendation algorithm on YouTube needs to, like, buy a convertible and, like, be, a, be young again. You know, like... <laughs> Just get really into model trains. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, like, I, I heard you on Waveform with Marquez, and I've talked to Marquez about this, too. We see this, too. YouTube thinks that our video should be shown to 97% men. Yeah. And then we look at the actual stats in the tech industry mm-hmm. and like 70% of purchase decisions in tech are made by women. Mm-hmm. So I know based on the actual money that is spent that women are very interested in technology mm-hmm. and you can like make content for them. And then you run into this like crusty old YouTube algorithm that is just like very set in its ways. Yeah. And it's like only dudes. Yeah. And TikTok like just doesn't have the crust. It's like, it hasn't developed the rigidity and it'll yeah. just fire stuff at anybody to see what will happen. And yeah. that, like that algorithmic dynamic seems like the opportunity, but it also feels like a very big story about how culture works right now. 
Yeah. And it's also very interesting because uh, it's a different question. Will you watch this versus will you click on this? And I think that we have biases about ourselves and about what content is for us in our own minds too. And I think that deciding to click on a technology review video or a science video might be a very different decision than whether I will watch it once it starts playing. So there is difference there as well. But yeah, I mean, when I think about this, I'm going back to a previous moment in the conversation. When I think about like how TikTok is structured for creators. It's just so designed for the user. It's not designed for creators. It's like, it's so optimized for the best possible experience of the user, which is now like it's starting to walk back from that a little bit because like you start, you put more advertisements and you try and control things a little bit more so that you can not be in burn mode forever. And YouTube did this to TV. You know, it was a much better user experience than TV. And now it's spent the last 10 years trying to like create systems that actually make it like not just pure candy land. You know, we will promote whatever stuff does well, even if it's extraordinarily destructive to society. <laughs> and and that leaves space, you know, it leaves space open for somebody who comes along with a uh, set of features that is even better for users and, and even sort of more easy and fun to use. We've talked a lot about YouTube and their algorithms and how they work and access to YouTube and how you might, how there's levers to influence the CEO of YouTube and they've grown. And we've talked a lot about TikTok as a black box. One of the most important elements of TikTok as a black box is that it's owned by a Chinese company that has some element of control of the Chinese government. And they will dispute that actual mechanism of control, but like it's there, there's something there. And there's reports of data being shared. Yeah. There was a a story this morning about the Chinese government asking for a propaganda account that wasn't labeled as a propaganda account and and YouTube and TikTok being like, uh, we have to, we have to push back against this, but like it's the, the conversations are happening. You know, does this give you any pause about participating in this platform? Yeah, I, I guess the thing that gives me the the most, it makes me the most ambivalent. And I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I felt this way about YouTube to some extent. Like there, there was a time when it felt very values neutral or even values positive to create YouTube videos. And then there was a time when it felt like, oh, this platform is maybe like, I don't know every day whether this is does more harm than good. And I feel that way about all of the social media platforms I engage with. But the, 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 that's, but this is different. <laughs> Um, and I don't know, like, I don't feel like I have the expertise to know how different it is. And I don't, I also don't get the idea that anybody does. Like, I don't think that one thing that I will say is that I think that we all underestimate how powerful these platforms are. Like, I think that generally they don't leverage that power for much more than increased revenue. You know, I think that the best actors out there try to use that power to sort of like you know, bury misinformation, <laughs> you know, like that, that's some of the work that they do, but almost all of it is how do we get people to stick on our platform and show them more ads. So it's just the money motive. But like, if there is a motive beyond that, there's no reason why it couldn't be used for the motive beyond that, whether that is to create division or create, stick certain narratives in people's heads or to make people sort of just more chill. <laughs> like it's, Facebook's done research on on the fact that they can make people happier or more sad by what they show them. And they're also like, Facebook has been trying to optimize for more connection, which I don't know that they successfully have ever done, but like, that's a weird thing to optimize for. Like, it's a weird amount of power for like 10 people to have. Yeah. This is the weirdest thing about our current society that we don't think about a lot is that there's a huge amount of power being held in the hands of like a board and a CEO and, you know, maybe a couple of people around the CEO and add in, you know, a somewhat antagonistic foreign government in that equation. And it's an order of magnitude creepier. 
and you know more worrying so i don't i don't know how to how to interface with that and i you know my my hope is that like i'm not actually drawing people onto the platform but i'm reaching them with good stuff while i'm there but like i i think that that's weaselly do you think that you have to be there because that's where the audience is going i honestly don't think about it that way i use the platform because i find it very compelling to use i could have a lot of answers to this question that would seem a little bit less troubling but ultimately i think that we are all kind of chasing just emotions and dopamine and and like i like to i'm trying to be honest with myself about that and like the audience is there certainly that's a component of it but like i just it's really fun to use it does seem way more fun than making a youtube video yeah like yes instant feedback loop right yeah yeah i also like i it's weird because i have also am a novelist and so like it's like the full gamut of the like i'm gonna work on this for three years and no one's gonna see it and then it's gonna be six months done before anybody you know any consumer sees it versus a tiktok which is like or a tweet you know like suit like the most instantaneous like i went from an idea to feedback on it in you know less than five seconds no this is my whole thing we've talked about a lot of platforms twitter's never paid anybody a dime well also they they have also never paid themselves a dime uh, or their <laughs> shareholders so. but like ultimately if, if you believe that like people are like rationally economically motivated no one should tweet like only disaster can befall you <laughs> yeah. and you will never make any money and yet like the whole media industry is like let's tweet and there's like 12 people who've made money from their tweets <laughs> It's like, this doesn't, none of this makes sense. Yeah. You're one of the few creators who could go off and start your own little platform. We had Dave Wiskus <sighs> on. He's CEO of Nebula. It's a streaming service. Anybody want to invest? You, you had a big enough audience. Do you ever think like, <laughs> screw it, I'm leaving these algorithms behind them and I'm going to make my own thing and you can pay me two bucks a month for Hank Plus? It's not an or. I've thought about it in the and sense, but like, I don't think that there's, a, there's enough, like we'd have to make content for it. <laughs> I'm quite tired, but I do... I do find that model very interesting, and I hope that it's a, a big part of the future. Seeing creators make stuff that's sort of like in between the quality of a YouTube video and a television show because it's on a streaming platform, and so you can like make that work. And seeing the sort of the different things that can exist that couldn't exist otherwise because of that is great. And I think that Nebula is a like probably the like one of the one of if not the standout version of that. But like I and complexly are always like, you know, when we have these conversations, I've said, I think I said this in a meeting today that we are impact focused. And so like we would rather make a little bit of money from a lot of people than a lot of money from a little bit of people. So that's a reason why not to. But like diversification feels very good. And also being able to make stuff you couldn't otherwise make feels very good. And also there's a bunch of people in my company who want to do stuff we can't afford and it'd be great to make more <laughs> money for them. <laughs> I want to end by talking about the socks, but here's my last question here. You just said you're very tired. Yeah. I think about what you've done, which is build a, a, a stable business on the shifting sands of these platforms. And I've read many stories about where you have to go to YouTube and patiently explain to YouTube executives how YouTube works <laughs> and then like do TikTok and then think about this. And like, and it just seems like building a business as a creator on these platforms, which are not stable is exhausting, right? And we hear about creator burnout all the time. Where are you? Are you burnt? Are you in it? Are you, we got another 15 years of Hank Green? So I'm not burned out. I've never experienced what I think people are talking about when they talk about burnout. Like I don't, I've never experienced like a, a collapse moment. Like I've had my, I've had very bad moments in my career for sure. But usually they're not about like overwork. They're about some external problem that I can't solve. The, the things that have helped me with that 
are obviously having a lot of like enough resources to get help. You know, usually when I say help, I don't mean like therapy, though that's also good. I mean like people to <laughs> to, to, to take the burdens off of me. Other people to do things. Yeah. yeah. And there's having like people around me who don't, I'm not like as driven because I'm not surrounded by people who want the same things as me. And I think that if I like, if like that's very self-reinforcing. And so I, that that's a nice piece of it. I have a really supportive community of people who like, if I have to take a break, they're like, great, take a break. My brother is very supportive. Like I, like it's always been the two of us in this together. And so if I'm having a hard time and I whine to him, he will either tell me to stop whining and solve the problem or that actually I'm just whining. (laughs) And that like, you know, that's like life is hard and I have chosen a very interesting life. Like it it had the opportunity to choose a very interesting life that like is I love. And if it contains hard parts, then like that's other people's lives contain hard parts too. But sometimes it's like a thing that like, well, how do we solve this problem? So I have managed to not have to, to feel like I don't know. I just, I don't, am definitely tired, but I think that like, I wasn't this tired before I had a child. The sort of additive of like having a lot of stuff to do and also like wanting to be a good dad is, is a big, is definitely tricky and had me thinking more about how do I get great help? And that I think is really, I think that's probably a much bigger deal than I ever anticipated it would be. And uh, something that, I don't know, I don't hear like business people talking enough about succession or like how to create really stable systems of excellent executives, which just seems to me like it's like the whole thing. Yeah. That's the whole, this is the whole show here. Yeah. Like how do you build a system that can operate itself? And like, no one's told me the answer yet. If you're out there listening, (laughs) Jeff, uh, give Hank $10 million and get on the show. But it's true. When I, when I had a kid, that whole switch flipped for me like overnight, like, Oh, I got to spend a lot more time at home. There's a lot of stats out there that say the the thing that young people want to be most is a YouTuber. It's like the number one desired profession. Mm-hmm. Whenever I hear the stat, I like, <laughs> you know, like that's, you might like, I, yeah, I want to be an NFL quarterback, but like, it's really hard yeah. and like, it might not be sustainable. Do you think it's a sustainable career now in 2022? Oh, I mean, for a lot of people it is. <laughs> well, but like if you're new. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's ways to do it. The The other thing I think is, I think that it's more like when people wanted to be a rock star than when people wanted to be quarterbacks. Because being a quarterback, it's not a super transferable skill. And also it's very hard on your body. And also it's very, there's, it's a very select group of people. But wanting to be a rock star, you at least come out of it being great at guitar. And wanting to be a YouTuber, I feel like you can come out of it being a better communicator. You can come out of it like understanding uh, marketing better. You like. I, I feel like if if you actually sort of like chase it to its logical conclusion, it's like, oh, so you want a communications degree, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is valuable. Like, there's a lot of people who have great jobs and have communications degrees. I don't think that that's how most kids are thinking about it. But I think if they chase it, that like the skills that you develop trying to be a YouTuber are more transferable than like trying to be a professional sports star. And like, I am glad I wanted to be a rock star for a little bit so that I can play my son Simon and Garfunkel songs. If the concern is more, are you setting yourself up for failure? I think that dreams are always setting you up for failure. <laughs> you know, like they, I think that the main thing about dreams is that once they become less interesting to you, whether because you're failing or because you're changing, that you don't hold yourself to a dream that you don't have anymore. So that's the only thing I'd say to those kids. Yeah, I agree with you there. I would say that um, for all the management talk on the show, being in a struggling local band was the best management training I ever received oh, in my life. Like yeah. you got to have four people in the room and they all got to start and stop on time. Like that's really hard. 
Yeah. Oh, and, and being on tour, did you ever go on tour where it's like no. five guys in a van with a thousand t-shirts just smelling each other for two months? We hit our goal of playing the Metro in Chicago, which is like the only thing I ever wanted. And then yeah. we were like, well, what did it. it? Like nothing left. <laughs> Dream done. I'm gonna become a I'm gonna become <laughs> a tech reporter. Yeah, it's like I'm out. See everybody later. Like yeah. we we had we realized we had we didn't have the next set of ambition. That's a whole other show. You gotta have a member of the band who is mostly there to keep everybody else at peace and on time. Yeah. And like once you don't, it's like, oh, this is over. It's Joe to George. Loved him, <laughs> love him so much. <laughs> My job in that band was to play guitar and Final Cut Pro. It was like, the, those are my two instruments. <laughs> nice. You have two subscription clubs for charity on top of everything else. Awesome socks, awesome coffee. Tell us about those. Yeah. So the the whole idea is we buy things uh, that we need and want. And like the current model is in order to do that, you have to have a founder or stock shareholders who are getting rich somehow. But like, do we have to? Like, it socks aren't that complicated. Um, turns out they're more complicated than I thought. Coffee <laughs> also same. But do we have to? Like, can you have a situation where instead of when you buy socks, some strange rich person gets richer that you will never know exists? Could it just be that it helps build hospitals or something? So that's the business model that we're playing around with. It's certainly not a unique idea I've studied and, and looked a lot at Newman's own. And there's ways that it makes things easier and there's ways that it makes things harder. And uh, some of those ways that it makes things harder surprised me. Uh, but the the outcome has been very good. People have signed up. I think we've got over 10,000 coffee subscribers, over 40,000 stock subscribers. This uh, coffee club just launched recently. And I don't know, like part of me is like, okay, well, we're going to be a sock company and there's going to be a coffee company and that's going to be great. And part of me is like, we're going to take over the world. They're going to be bigger than Amazon. <laughs> but like, I never have a person who thinks too much about what the goals are. I think more about what happens today and uh, what's happening today seems good. And I'm just going to chase it and do it and whatever, whatever decision seems like the right decision. That's later. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Hank, you've given us so much time. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for inviting yourself on Decoder. This is really fun. Yeah, thank you for asking good questions and knowing so much about this stuff and also having a podcast that I like. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> yeah, bye. Thanks again to Hank Green for taking the time to talk today, for inviting himself on the show. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. And of course, if you tweet about the show, I will obviously retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.